Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlick and in this episode we are talking to Ida Wood, a journalist for Formula Scout and other publications. And Ida has um, published in the past two excellent in-depth long-form interviews with Dan Tickton who I interviewed on Motion E a few weeks ago. Uh, you can find the article on motione.org and uh, you can find Ida's article in the description of this podcast. Um, in addition to that, we talk about uh, what, make that, what makes Dan Tickton tick and um, what makes him a driver with potential for the future. You can find all of this plus way more on motione.org and uh, please do subscribe to um, all of the uh, podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, or wherever you get your audio from. And there'll be plenty more content coming up after the Rome E-Pre as well, so uh, um, keep your ears peeled for that. Um, Ida Wood, uh, you, um, I spoke to Dan Tictum, um a week ago now, and um, you're known as the Tictum Whisperer, thanks to your two very in-depth interviews with the uh, ex-Formula 2 driver, uh, now Formula E driver. So um, I'm hoping to get some insight from you on the person I just spoke to, because um, th- there's a lot of conflicting opinions out there about Dan Tictum. Well, um, shall we say mixed and not entirely one way, and um, I'm wondering... Why do you think this particular driver divides opinion so much? I think I think there's a lot of reasons why Tictum divides opinion. You know, he has a history, and particularly with that history, he was ostracised quite literally with a ban, but also, um, you know, socially ostracised from a lot of motorsport circles. So when that occurs, it's very hard, no matter how good you are, to then bring yourself back into the fraternity fully you're always seen as a bit of an outsider um I think with Ticton that's that's certainly been the case over the last three four years as he's, he's gone back through European F3 um Super Formula F2 and now onto Formula E um but of course that the key thing about Ticton is you know he he chooses to open his mouth when he doesn't need to and and he's very open about you know that that's his start of doing things um, but it doesn't always land great with people, particularly outside of, I'd say, engineering circles and outside of a garage. You know, his direct approach to things can work in some contexts, but online it rarely comes across as, you know, the the musings of a massively intelligent and brilliantly PR-friendly driver. Even if Tixon may be that, it's just, you know, his style of doing things. Yeah, and it's it struck me uh, at the Mexico City Epre. Uh, we had as a guest pundit uh, Jan Mardenborough, um, who obviously has come through a different uh, motorsport background to Dan. He's uh, um, he's he's come through gaming. Uh, he won the Gran Turismo Challenge ten years ago, then uh, moved uh, moved in uh, and took a corporate drive with Nissan. But um, he's he's obviously been uh, effectively binned off by Nissan, um, in spite of being seemingly the perfect company man. He he gives good interviews. Um, he uh, always talks up the brand, even when even when maybe it's not giving him the equipment that uh, uh, that he deserves. And um, he maybe doesn't deserve to be on the sidelines. Do you think maybe he's looking at the example of Dan Tictum, who now is probably on his third chance in motorsport, effectively, and thinking, you know, um, um, kind of where's the justice for him almost? Yeah, I, I think I think that could be the case. I know Mardenborough has kind of 
come to terms with his situation now more than he was one or two years ago when initially Nissan kind of dropped him. And of course, what happens in Nissan in Japan and what happens in Nissan in Formula E and elsewhere, um, you know, drivers almost an afterthought because it's all about R&D and, you know, what's best for the company rather than what's best for their employees, in this case, the drivers. Um, so I think he could look to Tickton for this because Tickton does have, um, you know, he was brought up through Red Bull, which is different to Nissan, but you've still got that kind of structure around you of a major motorsport company that's telling you, you know, where you're going to move next, what championship you're going to be in. Here's the training facilities you have access to. Um, and when you lose that infrastructure, you have to basically fend for yourself. And, um, you know, he's got himself into that simulator role with Nissan, so they clear, still clearly highly rate him. Uh, but what I think makes Tickton's career interesting is he he does sometimes turn off from motorsport entirely. And if you go into a room with, let's say you're going for a race drive, whatever, and you don't have a manager and you're doing it all yourself, that can be impressive to some. But to others, it sometimes seems a bit risky because normally they think having that structure around you is going to make you more professional. You're going to make better decisions if you've got more people to bounce off. And Tictum has had this whole time a very strong um, management company behind him actually until just before he reached Formula E. Um, and I'm going to quickly try and find the name of them, um, if I can remember correctly, because uh, they basically helped him through karting. They were there when he got dropped by Red Bull, when they were doing the negotiations of Williams and having that extra person, not literally in the room, um, but having the management support there and also the clout of his management, because they brought several other major drivers into Formula One and Formula Two. Yeah, that helps when you're going for your your third opportunity with Mardenborough. I think he's a bit more independent. Um, although he's still got those ties to Nissan, he has, you know, he didn't come through um, the karting infrastructure and the, and the junior single seater ladder quite the way others did. So he didn't get to build that pool of contacts in the single seater world and even in you know the professional paddocks over there as much as Tictum has been able to because he's raced on the DTM Sport package. He's raced. In Japan he's, he's you know he's raced everywhere and he's done a lot of it and he's done a lot of development work as well so he's building his contact pool non-stop at racetracks whereas um, although I'm not quite sure how Mardenborough spends every week I think because his role is more simulator based factory based you know obviously he's doing a bit of punditry now it denies him that opportunity to really you know almost put his name out there even more than he was six, seven years ago when he was still, you know, you, you could say fairly famous for a racing driver after winning the, the GT Academy. Mm. And uh, he was the first one to do so, of course, as well. And uh, if, if, if that was back in the days when it was a big surprise to see a gamer move into motorsports. Um, I, I think I think these days, uh, Chem Bollock Bassi is uh, is is um, is uh, disproving all that. But uh, coming back to, uh, yeah, your your interviews with uh, Dan Tictum, um um, it seemed to me from reading both of them that um, you were able to get um, a window into him that um, everybody else can't. And um, I, I'm wondering um, how you managed to do that. But I'm but I'm also wondering, um, is is there perhaps um, a, a side to Dan, a, a sort of more, if you like, thoughtful side that uh, perhaps it's difficult to get out of someone in, uh, say, a beige room with strip lighting when you've only got 15 minutes, for example. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's the case. And I've spoken to Dan in person and via a phone. And 
I'd say he's been fairly open in both of them. One key thing with him is kind of talking on his level from a tactical perspective. I think he's a driver with huge, huge technical understanding of what I, what a racing car needs, essentially, um, particularly from an engineering standpoint. And also, if, you're, if you've got a car with you know, a baseline setup or you're doing a shakedown, if you put Tictum in the car, he could communicate excellently to engineers. Therefore, if you can get that communication to those to kind of bring that level of detail to the media by asking the kind of questions engineers would ask, and I think that's when you kind of get the best out of him. Um, when I first spoke to him, it was 2018, I think. So he'd won the Macau Grand Prix for the first time. And, you know, I think the the main point of every interview with Dan Tictum at this point in his career uh, was, you know, tell us about the past. How are you overcoming the past? How are you going to change your, your, your kind of redemptive status or whatever? Um, and the very first thing I basically said to him was, uh, you know, how different is the Dan Tictum today to the one who was stepping up to cars in 2015? Um, and the first thing he ever said to me was, that's a good question. And and I think from there, he kind of just had this level of respect that, that I could kind of delve a bit further. Um, and since every, every year I've interviewed him since, like a very long form interview, and we've gone into really good details and topics. But I think possibly the main thing with Dan, and this is maybe like the other side of him that... Um, you know, do, people do see him when he's um, streaming games. You, you get a very real Dan there. You see him if you're in the garage with him. You can get a very, very authentic Dan as well. And of course, when he's just uh, posting things online, etc., that's that's real him as well. But he is essentially a normal teenage boy now. He's in his 20s, so he's now a normal uh, 20 20 year old lad, and he has the same worries as people kind of my age do at, at that point. Um, and I think the best bit of advice he's ever had was when he was in karting in 2011. So that might have been mini karts or cadet karts. Um, and he was with iZone Performance, which is like the simulator company near Silverstone, I think. Um, and they were basically trying to get to t- get to terms with how Dan operates, like what's inside his head in the same way that so many people still try to today. And um, what they realized is he gives away a lot of his pie and th- this is a quote they gave to dan and then dan kind of uh repeated it to me and in, in as close to um as close to accuracy as he could um and basically said that when a driver was getting on his nerves or when a situation was getting on his nerves he was it was occupying so much of his mental space that he wasn't concentrating on what he was doing in the car uh, or even outside the car you know he'd be in engineering debriefings or at least in karting some kind of you know how did that race go and he'd be thinking about oh this other driver did this to me or something like that um and they basically put it point blank to him they said like you've got a pie and you're giving away too much your pie to your opposition to the stewards to to the people around you and things you can't necessarily control if you focus purely on yourself then that's how you're going to get the most performance out of you um and he took that to heart and i think that was why when he came to cars he adapted very quickly and he was very fast and also I when it comes to sim and development work they does a lot of he's very he's he's in his head now he tries to find the solutions he will work very hard to get um you know almost like a breakthrough in in an engineering conundrum if there's something wrong with the setup and he worked I, I think to say he worked more 
in that rehabilitation period between 20 not maybe not rehabilitation but from like the end of his casting career going up to cars there was more personal growth there than the tictum that obviously had that major incident in british f4 to when he returned in 2017 um he didn't just sit on his ass during that time but he is almost codified to get the best out of himself when he's given these you know engineering challenges when he's given something difficult to concentrate on that that can occupy himself entirely and means he isn't focusing on what others are doing or how things are going wrong elsewhere when he's got a very good car um things sometimes can go askew and i think with neo they've i understand um you know, that he had interest from other Formula E teams before. And when he's joined Neo, he's got a car that is clearly not the fastest and it's not the most efficient either, but it's something that can fully occupy him. And when he's fully occupied, you get the best tictum. One quote he said last year was like, I'm full-time gamer, part-time racing driver now. And, and obviously people made a lot of it of like, oh, he's, you know, he's spending his time in lockdown just playing games. And obviously he was making a few comments while he was streaming games that weren't great. Um, but what it essentially meant to him was his mindset was switching away from this. I am 100% of my pie is fully concentrated on getting the most out of a racing car to I'm, you know, my mind's being taken away. So I think that's what people need to understand about Tictum. He's, if you get him in his zone, he, he will reward you with the best of his abilities um and therefore if you're working with him you kind of got a responsibility to give him that kind of environment to be able to concentrate on the racing and purely on what he needs to do with the car and when it comes to media sessions which of course everyone you know does want to interview tiktum i think because he's he's a character Hmm. um that's almost taking him away from that that really uh concentrated part of what he's doing and therefore, he sometimes comes off a little uninterested. But it's very similar to like Robin Frines. Frines, he doesn't correspond well with the media because his mind is already, you know, back to the engineering meeting while he's talking to you. Mm. So I think that's the kind of side people don't understand with Tictum and why when he gets straight out of the car, he may say something very, very direct, incredibly abrupt and often critical as well it will sound critical and a lot of drivers do that but it's because he has the confidence in his own abilities and he has the confidence in the abilities of those around him to make a change to a car if he gets jumps out and says this is wrong this is wrong we need to do this we need to do this or we need to try this and he'll say it very directly um if you compare it to um other drivers such as maybe even lando norris where the lack of confidence Hmm. um which he's, he's shared publicly then actually leads itself not just to speaking to media, but into engineering meetings as well. He's trying to find cues from other people to what to do next with the car. He's improved massively since he was in junior single seaters, but you can see how a driver with that kind of um, almost stubborn kind of like, I'm going to get the most out of this car. I'm going to try and find what to do next. Tictum is, is how he got that third chance. I think Neo needed someone who, wasn't going to get uninfused by the idea of constantly plugging away at trying to improve the car. Um, whereas maybe other drivers who are in contention for that seat wanted to get results in Formula E. They maybe wanted to get a career in the series. Tictum is there, there, I think, purely to improve the car. Yeah. And, and that's why he's got that third chance. And I think that's why he'll get a fourth chance or a fifth chance if, if this one goes wrong, because ultimately you put him in his zone and he's one of the best out there.
Well, uh, Neo 333 already had Oliver Turvey, who is uh, kind of known as an almost chief engineer in the car um, because, because, because of that... Uh, deep knowledge of what makes the car tick so I, I can see why they would want um, an, another person with the same knowledge as Turvey to take the second car um, what was interesting talking to him was that uh, he he didn't respond in the way that I'd come to expect from drivers so for example uh, when I talked about uh, I, I think I talked about um, you know um, what was he looking at Formula E in the long term and if so was he looking to model himself on someone like Mitch Evans who's managed to parlay a career out of being solely a, solely an FE driver um, in the last few years and um, he answered my question in a way that I didn't expect because he took the word model and assumed I'm, I was saying is he a role model and he, he then went off on an answer about uh, who his role models actually were and how uh, no he he was aiming a bit higher than that and um, it was interesting because I, I felt like uh, there was a deep reluctance on his part to compare himself or his career to that of any other young driver um, where do you think that comes from? Um, oh, I think that, that there's part of what he was told by the guys at Fusion Motorsport and iZone back in 2011 to, to concentrate purely on himself not compare himself to others or, or what others are doing when in, and I don't think anyone actually ran these quotes in the end. In 2018, after or fairly close to the end of the, the European F3 season, he said, "I'm. I think I'm like I'm 100% could be better than Verstappen." Like he was putting it out there. Mm. Um, and Christian Horner publicly like took down those comments. He he was because I think Tixon also said that he was in contention for an F1 seat and that he was ready for F1. And Horner basically said like quieten down uh, that kind of thing mm. and since then we i haven't really heard dan make a reference or like compare himself to other drivers and i think that was quite a big learning point there is like he was saying he could be the best and someone's very publicly said that's not going to happen um and he's had to i i think oh I'm just thinking of other drivers who compare themselves as well. Well, just to interrupt you for a little, uh, for a moment, um, that to me is an example of a company reacting rather than proacting to someone because uh, Red Bull were managing him all this time or, you know, had him on the junior programme. And um, famously, their junior program is a place where you're kind of thrown in the pool and, and, you know, um, and, and then you have to teach yourself to swim effectively. Um, but I, I feel like uh, he, he actually referenced this in one of your interviews that Dr. Marco didn't really talk to him about, you know, his driving or about uh, how things were going. It was mo- it was more a case of, you know, if there's a problem, he'll call me. Um, and uh, I, I feel like a more proactive approach on the part of Red Bull could have actually solved that um, and could have made him, you know, perhaps um, a, a team player sooner than he has become one. Yeah, that that is that is definitely something, and I've spoken to Rebel Junior since, who have pretty much said the same thing of of Marco's approach. You know, he, it's very minimal contact. You don't know when he's going to appear at a circuit, but when he does talk to you, it does tend to be pretty constructive in in what detail he he does kind of give. Um, I think, and as is often the case, you know, when someone goes from one end of the the spectrum of um, you know, a, a character trait and then jumps to the other because they've been told the best way to do it is do the other. So concentrating on himself in this aspect. 
and because Red Bull wasn't particularly proactive and also because when he was in European F3 he had an incredible engineering team at Motor Park when he then went to Japan in 2019 which was the end of his Red Bull um, career he was essentially told point blank like this car doesn't suit your driving style you need to adjust your driving style yes you can help us improve setup that's brilliant you can you can help improve the super formula car for team Mugen but he still needed to change his driving style to actually suit the car and he was very reluctant to at this point he he didn't understand why he needed to do that and I think that's where Red Bull you know could have helped him a bit more beforehand because it's not something particularly Infinity Sport Management which is a company that looks after him could really dictate to him because you know they're a management company not a how to drive a car company um so so that was certainly something that bit him in the ass big time and that is ultimately what killed his career in Japan and ended his time at Red Bull. And, and so, I, yeah, I, I, I feel I feel that was uh, I, I mean it's 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 quite unfortunate in a way that uh, that he's still being judged on Super Formula because uh, I, I, I think people always use as a rejoinder well Gasly went there and did the job but Pierre Gasly is um, I mean he, he's not one in a million but uh, he's someone who generally has been known for altering his driving style to suit cars whereas not everyone is like Pierre Gasly are they yeah that that's certainly the case and with um super formula as well you have a very different working environment in japan so at this point red bull were a honda team so if if tipton wasn't able to um you know effectively work with the guys at honda and mugen in japan then what chance was that going to be the case when alpha tari or toro rosso as it was then was going to be using honda engines um so i think red bull kind of looked ahead there and when you know we've got a driver gasly who who can change and he can prove he can work incredibly well um with the japanese and we've got a driver who can't and as simple as it is with the decisions at red bull and the junior team they basically said that's enough we've had enough tick you know our future is with honda so how is tick going to fit into that and um, so that's essentially what they did there but the interesting thing of how we, how he's now in formula e as well is when he got to formula 2 He'd kind of picked up a bit that Super Formula driving style, but it still bit him really hard because the car he had um, almost complemented his driving style too much. Um, and it was therefore very slow. And that made him look a bit, I wouldn't say bad as a driver in his rookie mm. F2 season, but it certainly kind of gave everyone more fuel to the fire that when he did make a PR error or something, people were more willing to jump on it than if he was the quickest driver in the championship if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it does make sense. And um, w- one thing that you reference a lot in the two interviews is his uh, smooth driving style. He, he actually uh, um, mentions that as well. Um, and uh, I, I didn't sadly have time to ask him this because it was a very short interview that I was able to do with him. But um, it, it strikes me that Formula E is not necessarily a place which uh, suits a sort of button-esque smooth driving style. Um, it's maybe a place where he will have to adapt to get the best out of cars at certain circuits, although he did all right in Diria to his credit. Um What's your take on that? Do you think Formula E is something that he can uh, he can bend to suit him, if you like? Yeah, yeah, and I, I certainly think he's got an eye on Gen Three here as well, because with the higher downforce cars that are coming in, and AC Formula E is going to look a little more like a regular single seater and driving style next season. 
so having a smoother style should be more suitable but obviously this year he's you know he's got to bend what he has to the needs of not just the car but i think the tracks as well and the reason tictum has been very very good at street tracks is he can switch himself to this kind of um basically if the if the rear i wouldn't necessarily it's oversteer but the rear axle rotates a lot on corner entry um and although that can cause you know rear tires going up in temperature um it does mean it's very good for a street circuit where you've got a lot of short tight corners which you, you literally need to turn around quickly before you're onto the next very short straight so with that driving style i think he should be able to do well in formula e and the neo car you're not necessarily going to see it um and it's more, I think, next season where if Tictum is still in the championship, you're going to see him being, you know, equated to the other top drivers in the series. Perhaps not in results, but certainly in, in his approach and, and what he's actually doing with the machinery he's got. Um, the the ish, other issue, I think, with that smooth driving style as well is you don't know what the grip level is going to be like until, uh, well, until qualifying, because obviously free practice is such different um track conditions and with the all-weather tire as well that's something that it puts more reliance on the driver understanding what they're feeling through you know their buttocks through their feet through the the resistance through their hands and that's something he's incredibly incredibly good at but whether he can do that quick enough to you know within the space of a day because you know a formulary race weekends are so short go from free practice to the race and have that all calculated i'm not sure he could be able to do that yet and even with turvy now i think there's points where turvy doesn't look like you know the most underrated driver in formula i think he just looks like a driver doing the doing the job but but not doing anything exemplary and and that kind of comes with when you're in the same environment for years and years there's nothing to to really shake up turvy's time in formula e whereas with tictum potentially he's a disruptive element in a good way here that they can see what Tictum's doing wrong uh, or right in the car and try and see what it can then correlate to Turvey's driving style because obviously he's got so much more experience uh, and they can maybe find solutions through errors rather than what they get right, if that makes sense. It does. And the, the conversation around Oliver Turvey often often reminds me of the conversation around late period Jarno Trulli in Formula One. People people talk about, uh, oh, well, he's he, he's a great constant to have in the team. He's 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 a good qualifier. He's uh, he's he's always he's always going to give you an eight out of ten performance. He's and. and um, I, I feel like it's a good benchmark by which uh, for a young driver to measure himself against because if you're coming into a team, you you, you really want someone who is always going to be that benchmark uh, um, so that you can see if you're excelling or not. Um, would you agree? Uh, I think I'd actually disagree on this one. Uh, just, just from understanding Tixum's mindset, I think because he looks at himself more than he looks at the other side of the garage, he's almost going to assume the role of team leader within his head in a as you very does sound egotistical um but he's not going to think that uh, that turvy is there to be a benchmark for him he's going to be thinking he he is there as on himself uh, by himself as a benchmark for the team as is turvy uh and i don't think the the kind of the relationship between those two would possibly be in that way that turvy does have the experience and then Tictum looks at that and tries to bring from it I think it'd be more the team uses 
ticked him and uses Turvey in that way. And they, as, as if the team was just suddenly coming into Formula E in its rookie season, I'd almost equate it to them being the new, the new bit. Um, so that they then learn from Tictum and they then learn from Turvey to, to almost improve both. But, but um, I think in all of his teammates, when he had the uh, super formula spell and he obviously had a far more experienced teammate, it was the same thing there. He, he was quicker than his teammate at the time. Sometimes he was a lot slower, but he basically said he didn't want to think about it. He wasn't there to think about how he was comparing to his teammate. He was very much there trying to do his own thing. And obviously it backfired in the end because, uh, you know, Japan has a very different working um, kind of style. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I, I do think Tiktum isn't there to look at Turvey at any point this season. Even even if it's like a circuit where Turvey is exemplary at, I think Tiktum's there purely to learn from himself, from his own experiences, and then to feed back to the team and do what you can for Neo. There's almost no allegiance to Turvey's performances, which is why Neo is like the the middle party that brings the best out of both drivers to actually help them correlate with each other. If that does make sense, it, it does. It does. Um, there, there, were, there was a quote he gave. I, I think it, it was published on racefans.net, so I'm assuming it was to Hazel Southwell. Um, and um, in, in fact, she said that uh, he said it to her that, uh, you know, Formula E's, Formula E is a place where drivers hit each other. That's just what happens. And if that's the case, maybe I'll have to adapt. Um, that struck me as quite a sort of Nikita Mazepin-esque thing to say in that uh, it's the kind of thing that a new driver doesn't necessarily need to say when they're coming into a sport. Is there a tendency to be to be overly bullish in interviews and is this a problem that he's always had? Massively, massively bullish. And, and it's not just in interviews, it's in um, literally the second he gets out of the car and he starts speaking to engineers as well. Um, he just says it as it is and I think he doesn't, um, I'll just say he, yeah, he's very much like a lot of people his age. Like, you know, we expect racing drivers to be, and I know Tictum calls them robots or like PR machines, but we just expect them to be at a higher level of professionalism than you would expect a normal person to be when, you know, in front of a microphone. Um, and you can look at politicians as an example of how unprofessional you can be. With Tictum, he he doesn't necessarily speak his mind. He just says how he how he understands the situation in the context that he's in um which is why his feedback can be brilliant but also why in interviews he will just say something i think i think it's also an interviewer's responsibility and it's team's responsibility if he does suddenly start talking about something you then need to interject and kind of bring it back on topic or um you know give him another thing to latch onto as an idea to then think about because otherwise he will go off on one once there's um i'm just being very careful what i say here um let's say you've got a like a um like something sitting on your shoulder or like a monkey on your back and, and it follows you around everywhere once you've got it there and you're talking about something and then you realize kind of the injustice of the monkey sitting on your back um, it's very it's very easy to then return to that as a topic to then complain about how unfair things are and to kind of say things as oh well this is the way it is um, but you know I, I don't mind that that's how if that's how it works I'll, mm. I'll, I'll join in that way Tictum does that a lot because a lot of the questions he asked does kind of lead to that um, but also because he's in the context of the environment he's in he knows he's on his third chance um, 
he knows that it's it's a bit like um someone with a visible um something that makes them stand out and you're always aware that even if someone doesn't mention it to you they will be looking at it or um you know it's in their mind they're thinking about it and Tickton's very aware of how people perceive him and therefore in interviews he then kind of rolls off on that and I think that quote you gave there was a very good example of how he's you know he just says it as he is and then afterwards he's thinking about it further and he'll you've got to you've got to be very quick as an interviewee interviewer to snap him back into focus bring him back onto the topic I always ask technical questions when that happens because it's very easy for him to then spend 10 minutes going deep into like tire temperatures. Um, but when he gives a comment like that, he he's well aware that it will be used as a, not a weapon, but mm-hmm. like um, just as like fuel for, for clicks, essentially. He, he knows that Dan Tictum is a character and he, um, he inhabits that character and sometimes it's not nice to know that you inhabit a character to the rest of the world in addition to being a real person he knows there's that gap between himself and the dantics and perceived by everyone else and it's very easy to fall into the trap of you are what you say you are or, or you are what people say you are yeah. um and that's and, um, depressing I, in some way <laughs> i did i did speak to him about nico rosberg and about uh, how nico is one of the most frank drivers about his use of a mental coach uh, and i i mentioned uh, obviously degrassi degrassi's given me- many comments as well about his mental approach and how he's come to it and i i asked him if uh, he'd involved anyone from outside uh, dan in um um, in uh, you know building a new mental approach and um, he, he actually seemed quite thoughtful about the answer I, I expected him to, to uh, snap my arm off and say why are you asking me that but instead he said well I have thought about it and I would be open to it but uh, I, I, I honestly think I know myself pretty well and I'm my own best coach uh, I think that's what he said and uh, it, it was an interesting response because I didn't expect him to have taken into account the idea of coaching but he has and he still rejected that idea do you think part of that is background because you know many of us come from families which just say you know if you've got a problem deal with it is he from that sort of background um in some aspects it does go back to his time in karting and you know a lot of a lot of how he handles things does go back to to how he was managed and the kind of rivalries he had in karting because um, he was up against Jamie Caroline back in the day. Hmm. And it was the same thing. Karting is very political where you can try and solve your own problems, but there is, you know, people know there's engine cheating, there's, um, you know, roll bar stuff that, that people do. And he was getting beaten and he, he basically went to his dad and he was like, this isn't fair. And his his dad kind of just explained to him that but karting is very political and, you know, the motorsport is only going to get ever more political the further you go up, um, which is kind of like a, you know, solve it yourself as much as you can. But the, the problem is always going to be there. Um, and when he got to cars, it was a very similar story because with Red Bull, although they give you, you know, a bit of support, it's, you know, you have to fend for yourself. He was in a program that did tell, you know, told him where to go, what to do and, you know, and what team he was going to. Um, and then he had to make the most out of that environment and and thankfully he was with a load of team bosses that he got on with brilliantly um and then when he did get f2 get to f2 after the kind of bruising experience of japan i i know then that he was kind of considering 
and I very much considering here mental coaching. So he asked the question to himself, like, what do I need to do here to improve? And ultimately it comes down to if you've got a mental coach who isn't on the same wavelength as you, what benefit are they providing beyond, you know, some inspirational quotes or whatever? Tixum needs someone who is on his same level. Uh, and often those are engineers. He, he gets on brilliantly well with engineers. And I don't think a mental coach, he, he kind of realized would be proactive to, uh, productive for his approach on a race weekend. He needs to get his head down with people who are also 100% thinking about the car, not people who are asking him, you know, almost like, what is life questions. When you have a self-doubt, you know, Roman Grosjean was a good example, 2012, 2013, uh, Lando Norris. Um, even even some drivers in Japan, uh, Toshiki Oyu, Yuki Sonoda, uh, when you do have that loss of confidence, that is when you know you need a mental coach because you need someone to kind of reinforce, you know, here are your abilities, have confidence in what you're doing in the car. Tinkton's never had that issue. Um, he he spent years not to say fending for himself, but making his own decisions and being very frank about his decisions. Um, and when it comes to that now. You know, he he doesn't want a third party almost telling him what to do, uh, and that's why you know, like you said, he seems very bullish in, in interviews, etc. Because he is his own person, he's his own man, and with a mental coach, a bit like when in Japan he was told to change his driving style, that's someone almost telling you how to be, um, and that is when Tickton does get a bit abrasive sometimes. You know, he doesn't mm. want to be directed into being someone else he wants to be himself he wants to be the real Dan Tickton not necessarily the Dan Tickton that everyone knows but that's that's kind of his I think his philosophy there that he wants to be himself full stop and, I, and that's I think you got to understand yeah I think those of us who've used therapists would say the job of a good therapist is not to put you into a you know cookie cutter but is instead to you know try and help you be um, a version of yourself that collaborates well but uh, or at least that's my personal experience but I I guess that's not how everyone views it really Um, final question for you because uh, I'm very respectful of your time and you've been great thank you Ida um, he said uh, that, in his opinion, on pure raw potential and speed, he could be in the future, and he caveated this very much, um, uh, one of the top three drivers in Formula E. Is that how you see it? Do you think that uh, we could be looking at someone who has that raw talent? And if so, how does he get from there, from here to there? Um, I, I certainly see that he has the talent in the car to become one of the best in the future. I, I've been a kind of a shouter of Tictum's abilities for a long time um, from working with teams and so on that, that have used him for development work and and even just seeing him coaching as well I, I can see how embedded he is with what a car needs so I, I'm therefore confident that he can with time get to the top of Formula 8 but it's so um, I mean Jake Dennis is a bit of an anomaly here but it is very difficult to come in at a, a lower team and work your way up to the top of Formula E so although he may go on a you know self-improvement curve with the car and when gen 3 comes along if, if he well you know if he thinks he's going to be the top three potentially in the future then he'd have to stay on for gen 3 he gets the most out of gen 3 with a team like neo then yes he could potentially land himself at a top team in the future and i think then with a top team he could you know particularly if he's partnered with a really good engineer because he has had some great engineers in his time um he can create like a an unstoppable combination but 
um, with the future of Formula E and the way it's going, and you know there is there are still manufacturers there, but there's not um, there's not as many as there used to be. Potentially, if we see more of like a privateer-led future in Formula E, I think that's more likely where Tickton would get picked up by a top team and he would become one of the best. If what Alejandro Gag actually wants and is to have loads of manufacturers for Gen 3, they're going to want drivers, particularly if they're operating in other fields of motorsport, who are already you know contracted to them, who are transferable from DTM or hypercars or whatever. I don't see that happening with Tickton. I think he'll be kind of locked out of the driver market. Like I said at the very start, he's still a bit of an outsider in some capacity. Um, and that, that's going to hurt him when he's trying to go for a top seat. But it's not just drivers who change teams. It's engineers, it's managers, it's mechanics. And I think the people who have worked with him at this point in his Formula E career, if they're then at top teams in a few years' time, I'm pretty sure when they're looking for drivers, they're going to be saying his name and that he's going to end up in a, in a top seat in that capacity. Um, but another thing is, you know, the likes of Buemi, Degrassi, Verne, Tacosta, they might not be in Formula E in, in five or six years' time. So potentially, you know, it could literally be Tictum goes to the top three by default almost uh, because, you know, the, the greats of Formula E have retired by that point. So that's two, two, I think, paths of how he could become one of the best in the series. Yeah, that's that's a strong point. I mean, um, uh, Jean-Éric Verne's got a few years uh, to go, but uh, he's he's still feeling his way back to the top, and uh, he's got that Peugeot uh, seat coming up in 23. Um, Degrassi's 37, and uh, yeah, uh, De Costa's had an IndyCar test uh, a couple of years ago, so y- you could potentially see all three of those out of the sport. That's uh, something something to think about, really, isn't it? Yeah, and with Formula E's future image, what it wants, because... If you look at the um, streaming numbers recently, very, very down on the pre-pandemic levels. You know, it's it's not getting the same public engagement as it was as a championship, almost at the peak of its powers in season six, I think. Hmm. Um, so Formula E's future does need, you know, drivers that it can market. It needs it needs marketing potential as a series. It still needs to distinguish itself from whatever Formula One is going to become in the future, whatever hypercar is doing in the future. And even if the drivers are attracted to those other series, um, they still need to get the fans involved. And I think Tictum certainly, even if not from a manufacturer's standpoint, because he's not brilliant at PR, um, but he is a driver who will provide on-track entertainment and therefore will keep Formula E in the public spotlight for, for years to come. And, and he's British. It's... There's um, there are British people everywhere in motorsport in you know in Japan, Australia, in the North American series, even even in some of the stock car stuff in South America, and the power of being British and kind of knowing other British people in teams is is going to be something that will be a strength to him for many years to come. Formula E is not likely to attract you know fully Chinese staffed teams, although obviously Neo is a Chinese owned team. Um, it's not going to bring in workforces that are as diverse as other series are yet. Um, and also because Formula E operates on quite a low budget compared to compared to even Formula 2. Um, so it is easier to have British-based teams, to have all of your infrastructure fairly local because you don't have the money to ship things around the world outside of the race weekends themselves. So Tictum in the future, I think, is going to have bit of an advantage of being a a driver who's already been associated with formula e and b being british and there being so many other kind of british connections in the championship 
Um, that that may sound a bit weird, but I, I anticipate the future of motorsport, particularly as we've seen in the pandemic, where travel restrictions have taken place, that there is going to be a certain advantage to being located in a part of the world or, you know, being able to um, live in England or that kind of stuff. Um, also with the supply chains as well, we, we really, really do not know if the current state of globalization is able to continue as it is. And it may become a more continental, continentalized supply chain for the future of motorsport. That That is something that is certainly on the agenda um, and would change the kind of the needs of marketing, the needs of sponsorship, what companies are involved, who they want to see in the cars. Um, and while, while I'm, you know, I'm being very speculative here, I do think as a final point, Tictum is, is at a good position right now with his third chance in motorsport um, to be ready if there is a seismic change occurring in the future to be in a place where he can still be one of those drivers with a seat in a professional series that is paid.